so blessed to be able to gather under the banner of Christ Jesus today and open up the word that was given to us. And I'm thankful that you're here with us to start this series at the beginning of this year. I've tried my best to, uh, to build it up, and now as I have built it up, I'm scared to death at the undertaking uh, that is before us and really the adventure that's before us, but that's a good thing because uh, uh, I don't want to get complacent. And so uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It was, uh, it was a big headline for the commercial airline industry this year as, uh, as they were able to broadcast December 31st uh, that, that they had gone an entire year without one commercial air traffic death, which is kind of a... I mean, that is, that's, that's really good news, right? In the United States, uh, that for all of the thousands upon thousands of commercial flights that, that uh, took off and landed, there was, not, there was not one death that took place. And, and uh, I don't know about you, but that, I'm getting ready to fly in a, in a couple of weeks. I mean, that's a, that's a really good you know, statistic. I'm really glad for that. And uh, I don't know if you like to fly. Maybe you've never flown before. Uh, but if you have, there's something really awesome about being up in the clouds, isn't it? I mean, just, uh, just the sights that you get. I mean, being up uh, in the midst of the clouds and, and looking around you and seeing these big, big white marshmallow-looking things, or maybe even being above them, um, and just seeing, just like, like in this picture, this blanket of white. Uh, I, I still remember the first time that I flew as a kid and just standing in awe of the fact that we can do that, right? And, and then when you look down... Uh, people, you can't even see people, but it looks like these, uh, these little lines have been drawn on the landscape, and those are the roads, and these buildings that are taller than you, when you stand beside them, you're looking down, and you see this grid system of, of uh, development. It's just this really awesome perspective that you get. And this is the reason that we are embarking on this grand journey this year of going book by book through the Bible on Sunday mornings. I'm convinced that one of the greatest problems in American Christianity today is that when we open up our Bibles, that we are looking for us. We, we, we open the Bible and we, we immediately are drawn to, where do I fit in? What action steps can I take away from here? Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, who, who paraphrased the Bible in something called The Message, he said we go in and we look for scriptural McNuggets. That's what we do. We have, a, we have a, a banquet table, a feast set before us, and we're, we're just like the picky eater child who gets to the table and says, I don't want any of that, I just want my McNuggets, right? He says that's what we do when we open the Bible. We don't even know what's there. We're just satisfied to go about it the same way that we always have. And all the while, the world is telling us a story with every commercial, with every radio ad, with every magazine that you open up, or, or as you go through the grocery store and you look on the magazine rack there, or as you watch TV and you watch the commercials that are on there, you, you watch the television shows that are on TV, you go to the movies, every single one of these avenues of consuming media, of taking something in, they're trying to tell you a story about how to do life. 
And maybe it's something new, maybe it's something just rehashed, but they are trying to literally sell you an idea of doing life. They're trying to tell you a narrative, to use a a popular media term. And that narrative may be true, may be false, but it's not worth living for. You don't need just a narrative. You need something, a a word I want want to introduce you to. You need a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative. That, when you think about the word meta, think about overarching. You don't need just a story. You need a grand story. And not a little lowercase s story, but the capital S story that literally defines every single thing in our existence. Don't believe the stories of the world that tell you that if you don't buy into this story like your neighbors have, then you won't be as happy as they are. You have a story. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you hold one of these copies of God's Word in your lap this morning, you have a story that literally weaves all of reality together for you not just to know, not just to understand, but to enjoy yet we don't know it. It's because when we open our Bibles, we're not meant to immediately make a beeline to us. We're meant to understand this story in the context, in a much larger context, the, the, the context of God's capital S story, because it's not our story, it is His story. And that's what this year is about for us. My goal for you at the end of this year is that when somebody tells you or somebody asks you the question about why you're a Christian or they ask you a question about why you believe in certain things that you don't just say it's because what's what I've always believed it's the way I've always thought about it it's the way I was taught it's the way that my pastor tells me to think it's the way that it's the way that my my parents believed now I, I want you to be able to tell them a story We love stories as human beings. Just go look at the box office numbers. We love stories. Christians have the best story. We just have forgotten how to tell it. And so that's the goal for this year. And and we're going to come together each Sunday and we're going to feast on this story that tells us about death and life and darkness and life and corruption and restoration and everything in between. And as we come together, we're going to feast on it. And yet at the same time, I don't want you to settle for our little Sunday morning forays into each little book. Each week, you're going to be provided with a, a handout that you got in your bulletin. And, uh, and these handouts are geared towards you engaging beyond a Sunday morning, which is really every sermon series that we do. But we've just been able to put a little bit more thought into this one and, and try to give you some tools that you can take home so that by the end of the year, you have a, a breakout of this story that you've gone through, that you've spent time with, that you've engaged with, not just on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis, but a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and, and beyond basis. And I'm, I'm, there's going to be a lot of things about each one of these books that I'm not going to tell you because it's going to be on this sheet. But then... What I want you to do is around your dinner table with your family, I want you to discuss just one question a night. Just talk. 
tell the story to each other. The story about the book, the big picture story that you're going to learn, and in all of these things, as you consume this truth, there will be a glorious transformation that takes place that we call discipleship. By the end of the year, you'll have 66 handouts, and you will have spent time getting to know God's story in a way that will be transformational. And it's not just even about what we do on Sunday mornings. It's not just about what you take home. But you'll notice that on the back, there's this, almost looks like a comic book. And, uh, and I, I'll go ahead and confess to you, I've told you before, I'm a visual learner. And you say, well, I am too, Ryan, but that's some awfully small print, right? Uh, and that's where I want to point you to our website, fbcibville.net. And you can sign up on our website just right there at the front page. There will be a little thing that pops up that says sign up for our newsletter. Sign up for that newsletter. And what, what's going to happen is it's not a newsletter like the, like the encourager that comes out. But what it is is that whenever I post something uh, to the website, you'll get it in your email inbox. The actual content. So you don't have to go continually back and forth to the website or they post anything, whatever. If you podcast, you can do that too. Uh, but at the same time, what you're going to see is this is from something called the Bible Project. It's really well done. These guys who know the Word of God and who have the same convictions that we do uh, as far as the Word of God uh, or, the, or the Bible being the revealed Word of God, from God to us telling this great story. And so what they're going to do is they've drawn this, and they're going to take it and break it down and walk you through this in little seven- to eight-minute videos that you'll be able to find with the post uh, of the message and, and the, the handout and all of these other things right there on the church website. You can go and look at those, watch the videos. I want you to watch them as families. It's not kiddie. Uh, we watched them in the college class this morning, and uh, it's, they're, they're so helpful because if you're like me, then you're going to watch these videos, you're going to listen to the, messages, the message uh, today, and you're going to be like, I never realized that. I've been coming to church all these years, or I've been reading the Bible all these years, I've been going to Sunday school all these years, and I've never heard that put that way. And it's not because it's new. It's not because I've changed something. It's, it, it, it's proof of my earlier statement that we have gotten so used to reading the Bible through a lens that is deficient. It's unhelpful. And so we want to go through and we want to understand, we want to engage, and you will be greatly blessed in engaging with us. And so where do we start? We start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start, as the Sound of Music told us. Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Word of God, and I hope to cast out all your fears about what this sermon series will be and won't be uh, during this first message, and I've tried to be very intentional about how I've crafted this. We're not walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're used to doing that once again, so we need to do something different to break us out of that, and you'll see how we're going to do that in a moment. But Genesis is literally the book of beginnings. The Greek word uh, where we get the word Genesis literally means origin, source, or generation. It means beginning, and it's traditionally attributed to Moses, who received it firsthand from the Lord, which explains how Moses could speak with such specificity concerning events that came 
about even before he was born. And so let's begin just looking at this story, this beautiful, wonderful story, which is a prologue to the first five books of Moses. The first goal of these messages will be to summarize the message of each book so that you can see the major movements throughout the story. Because once again, this is a story. There's drama, there's, there's cliffhangers, there's, there's uh, narrative devices. And so this being the first book, you'll be able to see some of the beauty of this story and how it was written. It was written in an amazing way. And so I hope that you'll remember uh, this message as you hopefully are reading through the Bible this year. We gave you some, uh, some Bible reading plans last week, and you'll be reading through it uh, chronologically. And so if you're like, if you're like me, maybe, you've, maybe you got bogged down this week, don't give up, okay? Just keep pressing through, uh, because uh, as you've gone through the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you're going to skip over to Job. Well, guess what message is coming next Sunday? Job, right? And then we'll, you'll, we'll do all of Genesis today, and then we'll come back uh, the week after that, and we'll do Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth. And so what's going to end up happening is you're going to get an introduction to the book so that by the time you get to it in your Bible reading, you'll know what's coming. You'll know how it fits in there. And it's just going to be really helpful. And so as we start in this book of Genesis, we've got to just confess, for many people, Genesis is, is just a jumble of familiar characters, right? We don't really know how they all fit together. But in line with its title, Genesis provides a beginning for understanding crucial elements about God, about humanity, and about God's design for life. And it's broken down into two parts, right? Very key to understand the book of Genesis. Broken down into two parts. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11 deals with God and the world. Genesis chapter 12 through 50 deals with God and Abraham's family. That's it. That's the, that's the breakdown of the book of Genesis. And with no introduction at all, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 begins, In the beginning God created. This tells us immediately who the main character of the Bible is, doesn't it? In the beginning, God. This is truly His story. And we need to remember that as we continue going. Out of nothing God created space. And out of nothing, God created time. But in that space was something formless, something that was void. There was darkness, there was disorder. But into that darkness, God brought light and life. The first testimony to us about who He is. This God is somebody who has not just created, but takes something that is formless and turns it into something that is beautiful. And in his creativity, he continues to create with the successive days of creation. And if you'll notice, all throughout chapter 1, he forms and he fills. And he forms and he fills. And he forms and he fills. And that's really important because when you get to day 6 of creation, he, he, he has this conversation within himself. And he says, hey, let us make man in our image. Very important. Because once again... We say, well, yeah, we're made in the image of God, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it basically means that man was created to know God. And as man beholds the work of God, the beauty, the creativity, the goodness, the way that he forms and the way that he fills, man is supposed to imitate God to all creation. Remember that. 
That's what it means to be made in the image of God. To harness, the, this, is, this is talking about us, to harness our creativity and to do that which God has done, to fill the world with beauty and with order. And here's the crucial element, is that He blesses us so that we can then go and overflow that blessing as we image forth His glory to the world. So we represent Him, we build, we create, and we bless. That is our purpose. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. However, there is this interesting picture painted as we zoom to chapter 2. And there, is, there, are, there are a multitude of trees in this beautiful garden where God has put man to exist. But there's only two that are designated, aren't they? What are they? Tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not given a lot of information about the tree of life, except that, where else is it present in the Bible? All the way at the end. That's key, right? Book ends. Tree of life is in Genesis. Tree of life is in Revelation. But then we're introduced to this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives Adam... The explicit command, don't eat from that tree. This reveals something else about God's character. Has God just provided one tree? No. Has God provided two trees? No. God has provided an entire world for Adam to enjoy. And yet he gives him one command. Don't eat from that tree. Well, you know the rest of the story. Because Adam and Eve, they uh, meet this serpent, right? This serpent, once again, kind of like God, is given no introduction, but he enters in and he frames the question in an entirely different way, or he frames the situation in an entirely different way than God does. God gave the command, don't eat, but enjoy, have dominion, represent me. But Satan comes along, the accuser, the serpent comes along, and he immediately casts doubt upon what God has said. Don't forget that, because that is... So important to understand. He cast out doubts upon the faithfulness and upon the intentions of God. And as a result of their failure to believe God, Adam and Eve disobey. Now here's what that tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented. It represented the choice that Adam and Eve had as to whether they would agree with and follow God's design for how to do life and what was good and what was evil. Would they believe God's definition or would they disbelieve it and try to carve out their own definitions? That's what that tree represents. It was that very real choice that Adam and Eve had. Would they follow God's design or would they try to manufacture their own design and their own definition of life? Once again, these things are so important. We'll tie them all in here at the end of our story. The serpent casts doubt upon the faithfulness and the intentions of God, and Adam and Eve choose to eat of the fruit. And this first story is a testimony of how bad human beings are at defining good for humanity. We're horrible at it. And this is what the rest of Genesis chapter 3 through chapter 11 is about. It's about human beings choosing their own definition of what is good and what is evil and what's life and what's happiness and the brokenness that results from their choice. They choose brokenness. 
They choose brokenness. They choose and brokenness comes. And it doesn't take long for that brokenness to impact the very relationships, not just between Adam and Eve, but between who? Cain and Abel. That family is devastated as Cain takes Abel's life, and then Cain is sent away, and he goes and he builds a city. And eventually a man named Lamech, who is the first uh, polygamous man in Scripture, the first man uh, that is, is noted as taking advantage of those who are weaker than he is, and he bolsters himself up as this great bloodthirsty warrior, and you have brokenness compounded in that first city that Lamech builds. And Lamech's family goes on and on and on until the brokenness gets so bad that God decides to push the reset button. And going on in Genesis chapter 6, this corruption increases on the earth. And God could have, he could have said, you're all evil, you're all in sin, I'm going to wipe you all out, and I'm going to start over. I'm going to create a new Adam and a new Eve. But God didn't choose that, and he didn't choose that because he wanted to tell us a way of how he operates. He chose one, Noah and his family. And Noah and his family received the command to build that ark. God presses the reset button through the flood, but notice what happens. How did the first family fall? In a garden, right? Cain and Abel immediately brought the brokenness to a level that brought about a further curse. Well, notice what happens when Noah gets off the ark. He plants a garden. And he gets drunk in that garden. And just as one of my daughters asked me this week, Dad, what happened in the tent? Well, we don't know. We're not given the details. You know why? Because the details aren't the point. The brokenness that results is the point. Because once again, Noah's son defined life in a way that was shameful and disrespected his father. And therefore, his son is sent away and is cursed. And so, at that point, this humanity continues to experience the brokenness and pain until you come to a place called Babel. Now, in Babel, if you don't mind writing in the margins of your Bible, write Babylon. Babylon. Babel and Babylon are the same city in the Old Testament, which is crucial when the people of Israel end up going into exile in Babylon later on. And so, as they, as this the people of Babylon, they decide to build a tower. And as they build this tower, once again, are they out for God's glory or their own glory? Their own glory. That's what they wanted. They chose to define life according to their terms. And so, hey, we've got bricks. It's a new invention of mankind. Let's build a tower so that we can make our name great. And God says, no good. I've already promised Noah that I'm not going to press the reset button on humanity anymore. So I'm just going to confuse their languages. In my mercy, I'm just going to confuse their languages. And God confused their languages, and thus you have the birth of modern culture. With all of the different cultures that we have on this earth, they all have their roots back there in the Tower of Babel, and God confusing the languages of men and dispersing mankind across the entirety of the earth. And then you get to Genesis chapter 12. So I told you that there were two parts in 
the book, right? Genesis chapter 1 through 11, God and the world. Genesis chapter 12 through 50, God and Abraham's family. Genesis chapter 12 is the hinge or the connector between the two parts of the book. And here's why. At the scattering of the people of Babel, this is, see, if we're honest with ourselves, this is where we get bogged down in Bible reading. Because you, you start going through Terah's descendants at the end of chapter 11. Terah, Abram, Nahor, Haran, Haran, Lot. Uh, and uh, Abram and Nahor took wives, and Sarah and Milcah, and Haran and Milcah, and Iscah and Sarah. And, and, and we get to all these names, and we're like, okay, 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 I've lost my place. I can't, I, 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 what, what, what's the question we're asking? What does this have to do with me? You're going to face that question over and over and over again, even if you're sitting here today. You're going to face that question. What does this have to do with me? That's an important question. And like with any good story, even though it's got slow parts, right? You've been to movies that have slow parts. You don't leave, do you? You don't get up and say, well, even though I paid, you know, $85 to come to this movie, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stick out this slow part. Stick it out when you get to those names, right, in your Bible reading. Because what comes next is of utmost importance. Because in verse 12, chapter 1, I mean, chapter 1, verse 12, I'm chapter, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, so the line of descendants has been traced from Babel to this one man named Abram. And God says, Go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so what did the people of Babel want to do? They wanted to make their name great so that they wouldn't be forgotten about, right? Well, look at what God promises to do in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And then the key phrase comes at the end, so that you will be a blessing. What was lost at the fall? The image of God was distorted, and the image of God was meant so that man could be a blessing to the rest of the world, the blessing was lost. And so what would God do about it? What would God do about the blessing, that he, the, the, the singular reason that He created mankind to image forth His glory to the world? They chose their own way time and time and time and time again. What was God going to do? God zooms in to this man called Abraham, Abram, and He tells him, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. God's rescue plan is initiated beginning with Abraham's family. God could have left us to himself, but God chose Abraham so that that blessing could return to the earth. Whereas the goal of the people of Babel relied upon the strength of humanity, God intimately connects himself with Abraham with promises that are impossible unless God intervenes, and that's the way that God loves to work. God is doing this so that this blessing can return because God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family who are eventually called the people of Israel. And that's where we jump into Genesis chapter 13, chapters 13 through 50. Because the rest of Genesis focuses on Abraham's family in three different sections. So we've gone from the creation of the world to the flood, reset button on humanity, to the Tower of Babel, 
reset button on humanity in terms of language. And now we zoom in to God's rescue plan being initiated through Abraham's family. And so the rest of the book of Genesis is about who? Abraham's family. And there's two stages in in this... uh, I already said that, I'm sorry. There's two stages that happen throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Stage one. I hope you're encouraged by this. Abraham and his sons fail over and over and over and over again. Stage two, God is faithful. Failure and faithfulness characterize the remainder of the book of Genesis. Abraham goes on to have Isaac, who goes on to have a son named Jacob. Now, who knows what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. (laughs) Not looking good for the people of God so far, is it? Because not, not only does Abraham mess up majorly and betray his wife, and then his wife betrays him, and God continues to reaffirm his covenant with them, now you go to Abraham's offspring. Surely, I mean, this is the child of promise. Surely things will be different. Well, no, Isaac goes on to have Jacob, and Jacob's name means deceiver, and boy, does he live up to it. So if you're looking at the book of Genesis for, like, good moral examples, please don't, please don't, please just don't teach that to your kids. Because Genesis is not made up of great moral people. Abraham trades his wife because he's scared. I mean, let's be honest about it. Jacob takes multiple wives for himself, and his name is Deceiver. Do you know how he lives up to that name? He lives up to that name by going and deceiving his old blind father. I mean, how wretched can you get? We think immorality these days is bad. I mean, go read the Old Testament. This has existed for, for all of humanity. And Jacob steals his brother's birthright, Esau's birthright. He deceives his father with his mother's help. And you think that over and over and over again that all of these bad decisions are going to do what? They're going to bring God to the end of his patience. But God's made a covenant with Abraham to rescue humanity and to restore the blessing to earth. And guess who the ultimate promise keeper is? It's not man. It's God. And so Abraham fails but God is faithful. And Jacob fails. But you know how God humbles him? Because Jacob's father-in-law Laban literally steal years from his life. And here the deceiver is deceived. And he gets humbled to the point to where he recognizes that he is lost apart from God's intervention. And God shows up in his tent one night. And Jacob does what? He remembers. He wrestles with God. Right? And once again, kind of like the sons of God and, and earlier in Genesis and, and some of these other stories, we're not given a lot of detail. About, I mean, because I'm thinking wrestling with God, that's, how is that possible? Right? But that's what the text says. And ultimately, the fact is, is that in wrestling with God, God blessed, once again, because God's, even when we fail, God's faithful. He brings his blessing to Jacob and changes Jacob's name to Israel. 
And we think, okay, well, uh, yep, okay, well, there's the key word of the rest of the Old Testament, right? So we must be getting on a, on a right track of, like, good moral examples of people who, like, behave and, and do good stuff like that. But, but you're going to be disappointed if you think that's what's going to happen. Because that's not what happens. In fact, we get to Jacob, who has an extremely dysfunctional family because he has 12 sons. And guess what Jacob does? Jacob does the most boneheaded thing that any father could do. And he shows favoritism to one of his sons. So what do you think is going to happen with the other sons? Well, it's what happens. They hate him for it. And it gives, if we're honest, it gives that son, Joseph, kind of a big head. And he's having dreams, right, about all his brothers bowing down. He shows no emotional intelligence. He goes and he's like, hey guys, guess, what I, guess about the dream that I had last night. As he's prancing around in his Technicolor dream coat, right, that's been so popularized. He, t- he tells them that they are going to bow down to him one day. And they're like, you've got to go. And so they say, let's do the right thing. Let's kill him. That's not the right thing, by the way. And thankfully, the voice of intervention, one of the brothers says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. Okay, that's better. I forgot, right? Hey, they sell him into slavery. And there Joseph is, is toted off to Egypt. And as Joseph comes into Egypt... Joseph's not seeming to experience the blessing of God. His family has failed him. His father has failed him. But this turns out to be providential. Because even though God's covenant people fail, guess what happens? God blesses them in his faithfulness. You see the pattern? Over and over and over again. That the covenant people of God fail. But God shows up to rescue and bless his people Because there's a famine coming, and it just so happens that Joseph, now through these redeemed dreams, he gets word that this famine's coming, and he's elevated to the second in command in Egypt. And he stores up grain, and guess who comes back to him? Those brothers who had betrayed him. And that brings us to the end of the book of Genesis. Because at the end of Genesis, we're left with these two earth-shaking statements. Genesis, the first one comes in Genesis chapter 49 from Jacob on his deathbed. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of the 12 tribes, right? They're called the 12 tribes of Israel. This is Jacob, Israel. You could just call them by both names. Jacob is on his deathbed. And for some reason, he hasn't learned his lesson, and he once again singles out one of his sons again. Except this time, instead of, jo- instead of singling out Joseph, he singles out one of his sons, Judah. And in, look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Sounds very familiar here. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? And you're thinking, what's, what's he talking about? He must be going crazy on his deathbed. But then he speaks these words. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's... Jacob basically tells the story that there's going to be this ruler that comes out of Judah one day. 
And this ruler will command the obedience of the nations. God's plan to rescue, God's plan to portray His glory and show His faithfulness is brought to the front of the stage again. How will God ever bring the blessing back to the world through these bunch of failures? I mean, surely, surely after a decade or two or three of these people running around on the earth, God's patience is going to be stretched thin. God's not going to tolerate their wickedness anymore. God's going to deal harshly with them, and He's going to remove His blessing from them, and He's going to go and He's going to take it somewhere else, because that, that kind of ridiculousness that you read about all throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, it's just, it's just not happening. Surely God's not going to put up with that. But once again, God's covenants, particularly the covenant with Abraham, was never about something that could be done in man's strength, but it was about the faithfulness and the character and the grace of an almighty God. Could this king from the tribe of Judah be the same wounded victor that God told the serpent and Adam and Eve about in Genesis chapter 3? As with all good stories, we're not given the answer. We'll have to wait and see how it plays out. That's one earth-shattering, earth-shaking statement that's made. But then Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph speaking from the providential perspective of the second in command, forgiving his brothers. Chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph encapsulates the entire book of Genesis as he looks at his brothers and says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive or saved. You see, this is the message of Genesis. Mankind has continually chosen to go against God's plan. We've chosen to go against God's design. We've chosen to define life and good and evil and happiness and family and relationship the way that we want to because we have the strength to do so. We have the power to choose our own way. And who are you, God? To tell me which way to go. The book of Genesis is meant to remind us that when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. And that not only us, when we choose to sin, we cast our kids into suffering, we cast our spouse into suffering, we cast our communities into suffering. And God forbid, as we've seen, we cast our entire culture into suffering. But what we, at our most wicked point, intend for evil, God's not threatened. God's plan is not determined upon man's power, but upon God's power and God's faithfulness and God's character and God has invited us to walk with Him, not to walk against Him. And when we walk with Him, we experience the blessing pouring out from us. God is sovereign, and He is working behind the scenes to bring His blessing about through the evil of mankind. 
So what have we seen? Just in summary, a few things. We've seen God is holy. God's holy. If you want a great description of this, think about the sun. All right? The S-U-N, sun, at the center of our universe. In our universe, there's nothing else like it. It radiates all throughout the universe. Its effects are felt all throughout the universe. And if you get too close to it, it's going to kill you. Right? And yet, the benefits of it far outweigh the, the, the consequences without it. And so... God's glory, God's holiness is the same way. He is totally unique in all of creation, in all of everything, in all of reality. There is no one like our God, and yet He is not someone to be trifled with. If you think you can approach Him in your sin, if you think that you can approach Him with your unrighteousness, then you will be destroyed. Because God is holy, and God is also just. He will punish sin, and yet He chooses mercy, and He bestows grace, and He is faithful through and through. He is sovereign. His power is amazing. He cannot be hindered even by the failures of His creatures in His fallen creation. God is unlike any other. But when we look at how God has made us, we are too. God has created us with a, un- a un- dignity as mankind. Our nature and our calling is to represent God. And yet, we are faced with the same temptations that our forefather and our foremother, Adam and Eve, faced in the garden. Will you believe God, or will you try to carve out your own path? There's life, there's blessing. There's communion with God when you believe Him and take Him at His word. But there is brokenness and pain and destruction when you choose to try to carve out your own meaning for life. When we define life and good and evil for ourselves, we reap God's discipline, His punishment. But when we define life according to God's design, we reflect His goodness and spread His blessing. And therefore, the book of Genesis testifies to us that life is hopeless apart from God. And yet, that's what we find at the very end of the book of Genesis because we're told that Joseph is dead because the wages of sin is death and human beings are still in their sin. But they embalmed him and put him in a coffin there in Egypt. And if we only had that book and it ended there, there's no hope. But because we have the very next page, the book of Exodus, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, we see that God's story is still being written, even through the death of Joseph, even through the death of Jacob, even through the death of Isaac, and even through the death of Abraham, because this world is in the hands of a God who is not threatened by our struggles, our failures, or our humanity. And so here's where we are. Tonight, we're going to gather back together at 5 p.m. Now, if I had to, had to rank uh, on, the, uh, the, uh, on the scale of, uh, of 1 to 10, people's desire to come to a Sunday night service when it's at freezing temperatures outside and it's dark at 5 p.m., and it's still deer season, I would probably say that you will rank it about a 1. And most of you won't be here. And that hurts my feelings. Just being honest. 
But the fact is, is that, uh, that we will still meet tonight, and what we're going to do is we're going to go in-depth about how this brokenness affects us today. Because here's what you do, and here's what I do, and here's, here's the reason you won't be here tonight, is, uh, I'm going to tell you, is because we constantly struggle to define ourselves by the moment rather than by the story. That's what we do. Age to age, that's what we do. It's what, what, we're, what we're wired to do. We define ourselves by the now, by how I'm feeling now, by what's going on now, by what I want to do now, rather than the story. But there's a better way to live that we're talking about this entire year. Because this is not just the story of Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. This is my story just like the song, Blessed Assurance, this is my story, this is my song, it is. And so how do we avoid defining our lives by the moment rather than by the story as God has designed? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. But I, I want to ask you as we come to this point of invitation today, how are you defining your life? If you had to, I told you to do an exit interview with 2017 last week, right? Did you, did you do that? Did you sit down? Did you think about struggles and failures and temptations and, and all the things that you faced? Let me, let me tell you, you had a right outcome to doing a debriefing of 2017 if you came to grips with the reality that you tried to create wiggle room between you and God's truth what you did. You, you tried to take some things that God said are black and white, and you made them a little shade of gray that kind of looks black, but it, that's just the way you operate, because you don't always live by what you profess. You live by what you do. You live by what you believe. And so that's how you responded this past year, because we are continually stuck in this cycle of trying to define ourselves by the moment rather than by the story. By what I am doing now, what I'm feeling now, where I am now, rather than by who God is and what He has done and what He wants to do in my life. Week after week, we're going to see the same thing played out in the pages of Scripture, that there is no life apart from God. And so my question for you today, as we come to the end of this book and the end of this message, is are you willing to let him transform you so that you can find your place in his story. If that's what you want, then guess what God has given us? Guess what tool God has given to shape us and transform us? The truth. Guess what my deepest desire is? That you would know the truth. And we know what happens when you know and believe the truth. You find freedom from the cycle that you're stuck in. That's what tonight's about. You get a little foretaste of that. Now, there's some legitimate reasons some people have not to be here. I understand that. But I just thought I'd share my heart with you. It's probably the last time you'll hear me say that. But today, today, be honest with yourself. Where are you right now? What's your heart's desire? Do you want to know his story? you want to find your place in his story? 
That's why he's given us the church. It's a family through whom the blessing of God is poured out into this community. And guess what? Not only does God want you to be a part of it, we want you to be a part of it as well. And so if you're not a part of this church family, I want to invite you just in the next few moments. You can make your way down to the front. I'll be standing right here, and you can come, and you can ask for membership. Maybe, maybe you've been living out of harmony with God. You, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. And you want to find your place in his story, then you need to do that by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus today. Maybe, maybe you just need to know more and you need to talk more. I, one of the things that I love about this church is that they've given me the job of being here for you when you need me. <laughs> and so if that's you and you need to talk more, I've had people call me and ask questions about like when they're reading through the Bible you know, this year. Like, I love that. So call me. Come talk to me. That's why I'm here. I want you to know the truth. I want you to walk in the truth. I want you to understand what it looks like to walk with Jesus because that is how life was meant to be lived. And so today, there's a variety of responses that need to happen in this place. I'm going to encourage you, where do you find your place? How do you need to respond? And this is the time for us to do that. Let's pray together.